This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to our podcast, where we'll discuss some of the issues surrounding reoccupancy of offices in the UK after the lockdown that we've all just been through. My name is Sarah Morley, and I'm a partner in the real estate group at Charles Russell Speechley's, and I head up the office occupiers group. I'll be joined for this discussion by Kirsten Muller, head of real estate at Grant Thornton, and my colleague Noel Wardle, dispute and regulatory partner specialising in health and safety. Kirsten's going to talk first off about some of the considerations that Grant Thornton and their clients have with a view to getting people back into their offices and others working remotely and how those are going to work together. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, and uh, yeah, great to be part of this, uh, this podcast today. Yeah, I just want to take a few minutes to really talk about you know, the, the approach that we've taken and I know discussions we've had with a number of our clients and contacts uh, around reoccupancy and, and actually the importance of uh, looking towards the, the organization's culture, uh, what, what your, your people want, uh, and really reflecting that. Because I think these, you know, the pandemic that we've gone through that's still ongoing is obviously, you know, it's been classed as kind of once in a generation opportunity to, to look at uh, how much office space you're occupying. And, and whilst, whilst that may be right, I think it's, it's too simplistic to actually say it's only a financial exercise. Um, we certainly, you know, throughout the, the lockdown and on an ongoing basis, are speaking to our people to obviously make sure, A, that they're comfortable working from home, uh, obviously looking at productivity, um, and then also kind of relationships. You know, how are these line relationships faring at a time when, when physical contact is very limited? And, and what about teamwork? A lot, a lot of our work, and I know a lot of other organizations' work, does depend on teamwork. And certainly something we find is that certain aspects that actually work much better. Uh, there's some aspects um, in, in particular around some of the innovation that are more challenging with, with purely digital tools. And then, of course, the question turns as to well, what does the future look like? And I think one, one thing uh, we, we probably know is that it's not going to be back to business as usual, certainly not, not for Grand Fountain and not for a number of other businesses. But exactly what is that split uh, going to be uh, between office and home or all else there? The one, one thing I think we have figured out so far is that the office is still going to be there and it's going to be used much more for like a collaboration, learning and development, frankly socializing between teams, and, and of course building client relationships uh, as well. Whilst, of course, the home can be used much more for focus time, but it's for writing a report, researching. Uh, and, of course, the benefit is there with uh, reduced um, time, commuting time in particular. Uh, and the extra time can either be used for increased productivity or, or uh, employees can use that to, for less leisure times and time with family. So hopefully, actually, on going forward, that will be much more balanced and, and well-being of employees will be looked after. So I think the, the key then is, is the flexibility and agility on an ongoing basis. Now there are some challenges with that and that an organization like ours and a number of others have historically looked at uh, in a measuring input to measuring time, for instance, the timesheets. Uh, and we've recognized that actually that needs to be much more as in looking at, at the outcomes and, and focusing on the outcome. and. Uh, how we how we get to the outcome and how how flexibility fits into that is, is obviously key. And 
certainly one thing that has already happened over the last few months is actually trusting uh, the employees much more. And I think that that is a key thing that I've picked up from a number of conversations. But actually, someone doesn't have to sit in front of their laptop or computer for 10, 12 hours a day to do something. It's actually trusting your, your employees to do what's right. Of course, as leaders, we have a big role to play in that. Uh, and, you know, in modeling that behavior and actually making sure we don't uh, revert back to, to measuring inputs. And certainly, one of the other things which has been quite a big one for, for me and the team is around boundary management. Uh, whereby you know you need to have some distinction between um, the office, even when it's at home, and your home life, and to make sure that you don't uh, intrude into one another too much. So, so those those are the kind of the key things that we find out, and um, they're quite interesting because undoubtedly this is an area that will continue to, to develop. One thing is clear to us that you know going back to what it was like before, I think is is probably going to be happening. Uh, it will be some hybrid, and undoubtedly it will continue to change. I mean, just briefly, and there's some other some, some other points which we, we've been talking to a number of our clients around, which is around the general security um, of working uh, from different places, be that at home or other places, and that that really captures uh, sort of um, security in terms of data security, cyber security, and and of course security in terms of uh, information potentially getting in the wrong hand and you know, not working in an office environment does for up some interesting challenges from people using uh, home IT equipment uh, to potentially printing things and, and uh, other people seeing sensitive information just kind of looking over someone's shoulder but in a different type of environment and I think the key there is to have obviously robust procedures in place as, as an employer but then also to, to continue to train uh, the workforce and making sure they understand uh, what, what those key points are. So, Sarah, that, that, those were sort of my thoughts. So, so back, back to you. Thank you, Kirsten. And some some really interesting thoughts there. And lots of those will fit in with the kind of things that, that we've been talking to our office occupier clients about. Um, so I just thought I would speak a little bit about what we're seeing in the market at the moment. Um, and as you've said, there's obviously been a lot of discussion over the last few months about what the future of, of offices will be. Um, we've all been in a huge working from home experiment and everyone's talking about that means that businesses may need less office space in the long term. But I think from discussions that we've been having, the reality is that no one really knows yet exactly how this will actually shake down and how much space they will actually need. You've, you've mentioned um, for learning and development, for collaboration, all of those things are still going to be hugely important and the office is going to pay, play a huge part in that. So what we're seeing some of our clients want if they're looking for new office space or a move, we're seeing them want even more than before are certain facilities on offer in a building. So more showers and better facilities of showers, more bike spaces, um, that kind of thing. If employees are being asked or much more likely to walk, run or cycle to work, they're going to want to know that those facilities are there for them when they when they do that. We're also seeing some clients considering a move to sort of smaller, more locally based hubs rather than very large HQ. Um, that was always the, the tradition. There's a lot of talk and has been for, as, as we all know, for, for many years now about co-working. Um, will those kind of co-working spaces be as popular we simply don't know um, at this point in time um, and the interesting thing is from a legal perspective is that obviously decisions about the amount of space that 
businesses have are taken sporadically when a lease expires or when a break clause is coming up not on a on a day-by-day basis so there are certain businesses who have those lease events coming up that are in a position to make those kind of decisions now not all businesses are because they're tied into a lease for a certain period of time and don't necessarily see much of a secondary market for it what we are seeing is clients who have those lease events coming up are not necessarily wanting to make those big decisions right now in a time of such uncertainty but perhaps to try and agree a a sort of short-term nine to 12 months extension in their current space with their landlord which then will allow them the time to make a decision about where and how much space they'll actually need going forward and um and interestingly they're finding that landlords in this particular market are tending to be much more amenable to those kind of suggestions of a short-term extension than they might usually have been um, in the past and, and those are those are sort of some of the things that we're that we're seeing and that we're talking to our clients about um, but certainly we're not we're not predicting and, uh, and we're agreeing with with Kirsten we're not predicting the the death of the office yet that it'll just be used in a very um, in potentially a different way and, and for different activities and so the space that that I think that clients are wanting from their from their landlords is going to need to be more more flexible and and just to offer them that more that flexibility to do different things within that space than the more traditional desk-based activity that's some of the things that we're seeing at the moment noel is then going to talk through some of the health and safety provisions um, and what businesses need to think about from a legal angle over to you noel thanks sarah yeah it's interesting that we're talking a lot about what businesses want and what they might need, but of course, businesses are also constrained by the law, what they're actually allowed to do. And so I'm going to look a little bit at the legal position in terms of health and safety legislation, which sets out what in fact can and can't be done at the moment. This is a changing situation. And so you've got to keep an eye on what the, the law is saying that the overarching legal framework for health and safety legislation in the UK is set out in a piece of legislation called the Health and Safety at Work Act from 1974. And that lays down the basic duty which is imposed on all businesses in the UK to protect the health, safety and welfare at work of both employees and those not in the business's employment. The statutory duties under the Act are not absolute, so businesses are required to do all that is reasonably practicable And that's a term that's been included in worker safety legislation for a long time, well over 100 years. And what is reasonably practicable requires an assessment of the activity taking place on the one hand, the risk of harm arising from that activity, and the seriousness of the harm that may arise on the other hand. And then a consideration of the measures that could be taken to reduce or even eliminate that risk, and what uh, what would be reasonably practicable in those circumstances. For the purposes of returning to the office environment, the Health and Safety at Work Act is underpinned by a whole raft of regulations which set out additional obligations on employers, either generally or by reference to specific industries or indeed specific risks. Of course, a specific risk at the moment in returning to the office environment is uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and an important obligation on employers is set out in the management of health and safety at work regulations 1999 which require that all employers must prepare a suitable and sufficient risk assessment. That risk assessment must be written down where you employ more than five people or more and must have regard to all relevant guidance. 
In anticipation of industries returning to work and employers reducing the risk of infection, the government has produced a raft of guidance for specific industries which details what COVID-19 secure risk assessments should consider. And in relation to returning to the office environment, government guidance was last updated on the 31st of July, ahead of new government advice that offices, uh, people who work in offices could return to those offices from the 1st of August. Before that, of course, the advice was to work from home if you could. And that new 31st of July guidance provides a list of matters that those COVID-19 secure risk assessments should consider. And I'll just run through uh, half a dozen or so bullet points. Obviously, if you're an employer with an office, then you should read the guidance in full. It's about 40 pages. So the guidance suggests, for example, uh, keeping people two metres apart if you can, or at least one metre apart, provided you implement certain mitigation measures, which we'll look at in a moment. Further increasing the frequency of hand washing and surface cleaning, and that includes providing hand washing facilities, for example, on arrival at the office, so at the front doors. Uh, I talked about mitigation measures if you can't keep more than two metres apart. Well, some of those mitigation measures include using screens or barriers to separate people from each other using back-to-back -back or side-to-side -side working rather than face-to-face -face wherever possible. The guidance suggests reducing the number of people each person has contact with by using fixed teams or partnering. Uh, that's in conjunction with considering the maximum number of people who can return safely. So you might, for example, take the view that to keep people at least a metre apart or, or preferably even two metres apart, you only have half your workforce in at any given time and you have rotors as to who is in those uh, separate teams. Offices should increase ventilation wherever possible. Uh, interestingly, the guidance says that employers should take steps to reduce people having to raise their voices. Um, that's not uh, excluding people who are prone to shouting necessarily from the office or reducing the number of people who have stand-up rows. Uh, but considering things like not playing music in the office so people don't have to talk above other people or above background music. The guidance is, is largely focused on the office environment, so considering how people move around the office and restricting movement between floors, for example, maximum occupancy for lifts and implementing one-way systems. Uh, but it does also advise employers to consider how people are traveling to and from the office and uh, making appropriate arrangements so that, for example, fewer people are traveling at rush hour by having staggered start and finish times, providing parking if you can, or cycle facilities, uh, shower facilities, and implementing one-way systems into and out of the building and reducing contact points at those entry and exit points. So for example, uh, more cleaning of pass readers and, and considering what you do in relation to door release buttons. Employees should avoid hot desking and in terms of people coming into the office, uh, the guidance suggests keeping meetings and office visitors to a minimum. Incidentally, the guidance makes it clear that face-to-face -face coverings aren't mandatory in offices, but of course workers who wish to wear face coverings should be supported to do so. Just looking at what might happen if there's a problem with the office environment, this, this legislation is underpinned by legal enforcement action that could be taken to the extent that there is considered to be a breach. So the enforcement agency might be the health and safety executive, it might be the local authority, can serve 
enforcement notices to secure compliance. That might be an improvement notice requiring a specific cause of uh, specific action to be taken to reduce or eliminate a risk or prohibition notice. They could even close your office if they feel that the office is not a COVID-19 secure environment. If that fails or if the risk is very significant, then health and safety duty, a breach of health and safety duties does constitute a criminal offence and so could result in criminal prosecution. That might, for example, be because there's no COVID-19 secure risk assessment at all or it's not suitable or sufficient or notwithstanding the fact that there is a risk assessment, there's been a failure to take all reasonable steps under the Health and Safety at Work Act. In both cases, in order for a criminal offence to have been committed, there doesn't need to be proof of harm occurring to somebody. So the regulator doesn't need to prove that someone caught coronavirus because or whilst being at work. The relevant issue is whether reasonable steps have been taken to protect against the risk. If found guilty, then the sentence is usually a fine, but they can be significant because in part they're based on the turnover of the business. So very large organizations can be fined very significant sums, even where risks are relatively minor. We've talked about enforcement in the criminal sense, uh, but there are other consequences that might arise from a, a failure to have a COVID-19 secure workplace. That could include negative publicity or Indeed, a claim for compensation, if somebody believes that they've caught coronavirus whilst at work, then they could sue their employer. I think the risks of that are pretty low, though. Uh, you would have to prove on balance that your employer had been negligent, and you'd also have to prove that that negligence caused you to contract the virus. And of course, that might be difficult to prove. It might be difficult to prove where you contracted the virus. So probably more of a theoretical risk of being sued than an actual one. Thank you, Noel. Definitely some food for thought there. Well, that wraps up what we were planning to talk about here this afternoon. I hope that those of you listening have found something interesting or useful in that um, discussion that we've had. We'd be very happy to discuss any issues further. Um, so if you would like any further information, do get in touch with any of the speakers or with your usual contact, either at Charles Russell Speechley's or at Grant Thornton. Thank you very much. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. <laughs>